Uh, I'm Edner Sessian, the director of the center. Uh, today's roundtable on transhumanism uh, was proposed by uh, Bill Grassi, who will, uh, whom I will introduce, and then he will introduce the rest of the participants. Just two words about future programs. We have a program on boredom on April 22nd, I believe, and you'll get the notice from, uh, from our mailing list. And then uh, in, uh, on May 12th, we have a program on the completeness of physics. Thank you. Um, for me, it started in um, 2000 when I was involved in a, a conference at the University of Pennsylvania on um, uh, life extension technology. And then I started meeting all these people. Some, you know, the science itself is really interesting, but the proponents of it are also very interesting. And it, the whole question of who we are as humans uh, is something that engages me um, philosophically and otherwise. And I, the, the, this question of, of uh, how we're changing um, raises all kinds of really important questions. So that's, that's how I got into it. My formal training is um, in uh, comparative religion, religious studies, but uh, and of course uh, death is a big issue in that as well. Um, but I, these days I call myself more a big historian, or a, uh, so I, I'm really interested in the big story that science is telling and what, how we understand it and interpret it today. So what do you think? Can we live forever? I don't know. It seems preposterous. Lee, you, I mean, you, you're the biologist here. What? What are the technologies that are pushing us to the possibility of radical life extension? So when, when we say we, I assume you're talking about science. the human species, the human species. And, and into the future. So I, um, I wrote a book that's you know, 20 years ago talking about how technologies could be used to, to do everything, basically, that we could. Engineer DNA, it's now called genome editing, because that sounds better than genetic engineering. And we could um, uh, put in characteristics that would uh, allow humans to avoid disease, live longer, be healthier. <clears throat> and what I've seen over the last 20 years in, um, in the field is that these technologies are happening faster than, than even anybody expected it's going to happen. So I would say, I don't know, I mean, I don't believe in infinity, but will people be able to, will you be able to have children who live longer? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, we already know how you could do that. Can you do it to yourself? Um, it's not, um, not quite as easy. I don't have a response so, on that. So we're all familiar, Ray, Ray Kurzweil's book, uh, The Singularity, it's what now, five, six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. um, he argues that there's all these exponential trends and we're moving towards this place where um, by 2045 we will pass a threshold in which uh, we're going to be able to um, you know, uh, replenish the telomeres in our chromosomes, replace our organs with you know, uh, genetically cultivated uh, organs out of pigs or other animals, uh, or uh, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, 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 I, I guess the, the natural human maximum human lifespan is 125, around there. For the current human genome. Uh, pardon for the current genome, right? Um, there are some species that uh, live a really long time. Um, Turtles. 
girls. Um, anyway, it's it's uh, it, it's a, you know it's it's that's only one aspect of the transhumanist project. Uh, there's also the enhancement uh, issues that are go that are going I think we're on. We're jumping a little bit too much here. Okay, so go ahead. You go started with living uh, radical life extension is just one aspect. I would like to suggest that there is a difference between living longer and living forever. What Aubrey de Grey and other proponents of radical life extension want is basically the postponement of death, the perpetual postponement of death. So the first task on your, the burden of proof is on you in this case uh, to show us that this is A, doable, feasible, and B, is it desirable? I would argue that it's definitely not desirable. I'm not a scientist, I cannot say if it's doable, but that's, that's where the science should come in. So we can talk about radical life extension, but it's really one element in transhumanism that requires a lot more conversation and unpacking. Why is it not desirable? Okay, so... <laughs> and what's the... You're playing into my What's the object writing. of that Yeah, sense. what's the option? So the option is... The object. Options. Uh, object, not desirable oh. to who? Okay, fair enough. So let's talk about uh, radical life extension. Why is it a good idea? And why is it not a good idea? We, so the argument, as the title of the book suggests, we all want to be young. I would first begin with the question, do we really? Do I really want to be 20 years old? I definitely don't. Do I want to be a healthy person in my current stage? I'm in my late 60s. Yes, I do. But between that and radical life extension, there's a big difference. So let's figure out what Aubrey de Grey and other people who push for that agenda really want. They want Aubrey's Everybody knows the name Aubrey de Grey? No? You should uh, know his Aubrey. work. He's a major proponent of radical, Aubrey de Grey, radical life extension. He's a major prophet of that. What does he want? He wants us to be really living forever through perpetual remaking of the human body. The main metaphor is the car, the, the uh, well-built car. Are we really, is that a very good metaphor for a human? Not sure. I would argue that no, but, it's not. So, but you didn't say, I think, or I didn't hear why it's not desirable. Okay. I mean, nobody wants to go back to being unexperienced, you know, like when we were 18 or so. But moving forward with more experience, more... Uh, and so does that... So given Can we avoid the degrade of our bodies so that not, not, I mean, so that, you know, we can... And what's wrong with aging with some, some kind of, you lose some, some uh, capacity, yes, indeed. No. No, but, uh, but I'm saying, what's wrong capacities. with that? What's wrong with being able to do that, even though no, I don't know there's if nothing we, we will ever be able healthier. To. The, more, hmm. the healthier we are, the better it is. But that's not what Aubrey is all about. And all the radical life extension project, as well as cryonics, don't forget that that's also part of the story. What this is about is really immortality now. I would question the logic and the wisdom of this idea of immortality as they understand it in a very materialistic and especially machine based kind of approach to immortality. That's my but argument. But what would be the problem of it? You, in other so, words, you so let's yes, talk about the... Okay, what, would be the what would be the problem? Number one, what would people do if they live for, to be 500 years old? Learn. Continuously learn. Learn. Yes. Develop right. new science. I will tell uh, you make new discoveries. Will, and what exactly would, would they do? And would the world, as we know, this planet, a very vulnerable planet, can support 
forth all those billions of people who are going to live here forever. We can be multi-planetary. Well, this, oh, okay. So, so then we go into space colonization. So space colonization is the extension of radical life extension. That's exactly what's so going what's on. Wrong? So, this, okay. so this this debate yeah. you know, is is ancient, of course. And <laughs> when Francis Bacon wrote *The New Atlantis*, there were the waters of paradise, basically a fountain of youth. A hundred years later, when Jonathan Swift wrote *Gulliver's Travels*, Gulliver comes among a people called the Lugnagians, and unusually. Occasionally, Lugnagians are born who are called Struldbrugs, that is to say, immortals. And at first, Gulliver is excited about this, but then the chief of the Lugnagians tells him that they become forgetful, deeply forgetful, in their eighth, eighth decade of life and can no longer remember the words that were said immediately prior to the moment. And eventually, everyone hates them because they're incapable of communication. So he says to Gulliver, take a few of these immortals back to your own people and tell them not to fear death. So there's always been the utopian and the dystopian aspect to this. And you bring it right up to the 20th century and you have J.B.S. Haldane and then the reaction of Tolkien, whose elves were immortal, uh, unless they were killed by a physical blow uh, or in war. Uh, but there is a kind of malaise, a kind of listlessness about them, a kind of lack of intensity and purpose. Again, uh, mortality being the mother of creativity, if you will. And so, so this, this so debate... mortality is good, according to that, the way well, you just packaged well, it. So, there, so that's well, for Tolkien, for C.S. Lewis, for many others, uh, mortality is, is a virtue. And, and Irwin, who is the great figure, gives up her immortality to marry... Uh, Aragorn because she has a vision of a son and she realizes that she can live a more fulfilled eudaimonistic life by embracing a son as a mother than being an eternal elf. It seems to me that this notion of mortality is good. When we were at this conference in 2000, Leon Katz, and there was another philosopher, the, the pro-death camp is what I called them, um, and they were arguing no, against... No, I, I would say it's a pro-life, it's not pro-death. It's life and death are two yeah. sides of the same coin. So, I mean, I, I think there's a religious component to this. It was, you know, until the 20th century, there was nothing we could do to expand, you know, make life longer. And it goes along the same lines with uh, with disease. There was nothing we could do to uh, prevent most diseases. And so the religious response was, well, it's good to suffer. It sort of, you know, improves your soul in some way. And I think that's, I mean, I don't believe that nonsense. Um, but I also think there's a difference between immortality versus life expansion, you know, in... in uh, Units, you know, okay, so the human life, some people live to 120, I think that's probably the maximum right now, and it goes up to 150, 200. Um, I don't see the problem, I mean, the population's not a problem. Japan, which has the, the longest lifespan, mm -hmm. is going down in population. I mean, they're very, very worried there are not going to be any people left because the women aren't having babies. But of their okay. 100, uh, of their... Uh, 120 million people, 14% of them have probable Alzheimer's disease because age is the main predictor. So the whole thing of, of life extension to me, I don't have an issue with it 
uh, lifespan, life extent, I mean, it's life, the lifespan is the longest that any single representative of a species is known to have lived. Life expectancy is the average life, mm -hmm. length of life in a given population uh, in time. Japanese have an 88 uh, year life expectancy. Uh, huge problems with, now you, if, if you were to get to a point where we had people living longer, and I actually don't object to it terribly because I think aging is a disease, at least it's a syndrome, okay? Uh, or a cluster of symptoms, it doesn't feel good to me. <coughs> but um, you, you, um, you have to include in that the compression of morbidity. So no one, if you, if you didn't have the compression of morbidity, for example, the eradication of these chronic diseases of old age, then you would have uh, uh, Swift's worst case scenario, which is, you know, extended life, but incredible dysfunction. Yeah, so no and I don't think anybody yeah, but, wants that. Yeah. Well, the purpose of what? That's the main issue that we need to put on the table. What's the purpose of being a human being? What do you want to accomplish? So tell us more. Transhumanism gives us a purpose, a telos. The telos is post-humanism. So how do they envision the purpose of the whole operation. Ultimately, it's really the mechanization of the human. It's the total immersion and infusion and it's more than interface between the human and the machine. So if we ask what is it all about, why are we to live longer, it's ultimately in order to become a super intelligent machine. So that's the difference between transhumanism and posthumanism. Transhumanism is the process of enhancement, of uh, all the things that we are doing right now already. We are, in a sense, in a transhumanist po uh, position already or status already. But that's not where we're going to end. What it's all about, it's post-humanism. The total fusion between humans and computers. Are you for that? Are you well, for that? I'm, I, I think I, I'm definitely not for that. So, I, I mean, my I mean, we are already fused with technology and science. And uh, I mean, we are already our capabilities are already extended by many technological things. And, and we and also have the responsibility to critique what's happening. There's no doubt that transhumanism has, has impacted each and every aspect of human life today. No doubt about that. That's why I think it needs to be taken very seriously and not dismissed as just a foolhardy thing, as some people have done in the beginning of the conversation. When I started working on this 15 years ago, people said, why are you spending time on that? It's all nonsense. I said, no, it's not nonsense. This is where we're going. We've got to critique it. We've got to look at it carefully. So I, I think we're already there. There, I think consultants... We are in a transhumanist age. It's yeah. actually better to, you know, back in the late 80s, um, uh, a really unique thinker, Donna Haraway, wrote a famous essay called Cyborg Manifesto. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. And it's true. And in some sense, we need to think about our technology as part of who we are. And it changes who we are. And uh, it's not just the glasses or the computers. You know, cars are. Cars are part of nature. They just have a very complicated sex life that uses us as uh, symbionts in their replication. And 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 so all. all, all are you saying this from an environmental perspective or what? I'm saying it in, in, in the sense that rather than think of our identity ending with our epidermis, 
and sometimes it's inside our epidermis too, and we have you know transplants and uh, uh, so on and so forth. But rather than think of it that way, I, I think we should think of all of these prosthetic devices as things that change who we are. And so whether you call us cyborgs or whether you call us uh, transhumanist or and you have a different understanding of posthumanist, I, I think we're already a, a radically changed species. And and uh, and we don't experience it so much, partly as individuals, but but it's primarily a collective uh, expression of who we are uh, as a species, uh, how we how we're evolving. And and if you say, all right, so we're already post-homing, we're already transhumanists, that sort of takes away some of the uh, utopic and dystopic dimensions of it. It's just it's just a big muddle. And uh, you know, it's it's uh, good things and bad things are both happening at the same time. I think it's great if we can improve health. I think it's great if we can improve longevity. I think it's very unlikely we're going to cure death, and I, I'll come back to that. I think it's unlikely that we're going to have um, uh, the uh, the runaway artificial intelligence, which is going to take over the human species. Yeah. Um, but may, but may, it may, is may, very likely, and it's already happening, that AI will augment all our capabilities. I think that's more likely than immortality. Yes, but the question is whether it's, are you welcoming it? Yudkovsky, as you no, well know, you is can, now trying to create so, so, friendly so, so, AI. Just before we turn it over to you, yeah. I just want to point out that yeah. there are there are people, who, um, uh, Leon uh, uh, Musk, uh, I mean... Um, Elon. Elon Musk, Musk Elon yeah. Musk, uh, for instance, who thinks that the greatest danger that humanity faces is runaway artificial intelligence yes. that's going to take over the planet and find us Dispo uh, dispensable. Yes. Uh, and I, so I just want to point that out. And then do you think that's a realistic scenario or something to worry about? Some people worry about, yes. Uh, whether I think it's a realistic scenario, it's uh, usually it's a question that I don't work on a lot because I think that uh, whether that's going to be realistic or not, I can be better prepared for whatever and whenever that moment will be, if I think about more current issues in augmenting our humanity with AI right now. There are issues to be considered right now, and there are uh, very powerful algorithms and techniques, even right now, even if uh, we don't have general artificial intelligence, a very narrow one for specific tasks, but still, it is super intelligent on that task. So there are issues to be considered right now, to work on, to find solutions, to guide this intellig human intelligent augmentation via uh, uh, technology in a way that we can welcome this. Yes, I would like to welcome that, uh, but not that uh, you're asking if I welcome this uh, fusion. Well, if it's a fusion without even thinking about the implications and without thinking about the issues, without working on that, maybe not. But if it's a fusion that is done day by day, um, improving and thinking about the issues and finding collective solutions and guiding it, then yes, I do welcome it. And you didn't tell me why I should not welcome it. Okay, so what I find... Uh problematic about the whole AI operation. We are obviously not talking the same language because you're talking about something very specific in the, in the 
practice of artificial intelligence. I'm talking about transhumanism as basically as, as the way it should be understood, which is a social imaginary. It's a story. It's a story about humanity, about the, the destiny of humanity and what we need to do. And I critique it on that level. I critique it from a point of view of a political thinker, an intellectual historian, and so forth. Okay? You, you see the difference? So we are not really talking the same language. Related, I think. They are definitely related. Yeah. So my problem is... Um, yes, we are going to live. We are living with uh, machine next to machines, but I don't want to become a machine. I want them to understand. I want people like Nick Bostrom, the ideologues of transhumanism. I want them to understand why becoming a super intelligent machine is a problematic idea. I'll give you a, at least three arguments. Number one, I'm first and foremost a body. I'm not just a pattern that is going to be instantiated in silicon. I'm an embodied person. And this embodied entity has mental, cognitive, as well as physical, emotional, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And I want to keep that integrity intact. But if I, you are going to upload me onto a computer, I'm not going to be the embodied thing that I am right now. I would call it an organism. I will use the organistic element once I become instantiated in a computer. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two. The embodied aspect is very crucial, A, because it has something to do with sex and with gender. The one thing that gets lost in this entire conversation is the gender dimension, as if it doesn't exist, as if there's no sexuality, there's no reproduction, there's no, none of that exists. Why? Because all this business was created by men, excuse me, who created the AI, the whole AI operation. But anyway, this, I, I would like to protect embodiment, okay? So I'm, that's a very important thing. Also, the environmental dimension is very important to me. I don't think that what's going to happen with this uh, AI taking over is good for the planet from an environmental perspective. Unless you prove otherwise, fine, let them prove otherwise. Right now, I think that they... In what in way is it not good for the planet? For example, extracting all those, uh, uh, all those metals that you need in order to do what you're doing. Have, okay. Has anybody talked about what happens? Where do you get all this uh, material from? It comes from the earth in some it's point. probably right? more efficient than human beings. Yeah. So we, we call it a problem. Okay, As energy, a human body consumes about 100 watts. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, of and, course. I mean, and, our brain and, and, compared and our to a computer is, is much watts. more efficient. When, when, yeah. when the Europeans uh, proposed some years ago to build a computer simulation of a brain, it was going to take a nuclear power plant yes. to, <laughs> to, to, uh, to, uh, to run so, all the But then if you take out this uh, uploading of uh, whatever, so the, the, the disappearance of the embodiment, which is not that's, something that's that I'm considering at all, but I mean, if you take that... Bostrom does. Okay, uh, that's fine. That's fine. So, so what? Okay, I mean, so, I don't no, have to but, agree no, with everybody. <laughs> but yeah, there's one more, that's the third element. The, the, the real thing that bugs me is the reduction of the human to a pattern. You're dealing with patterns, right? No. When you turn us into an algorithm, that's no, a pattern. I'm sure. trying to use algorithm to augment our capabilities. And uh, that's not a reduction why, 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 why to a pattern. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what, what your research is and what's going on at IBM Watson? Yeah, well, I mean, not just I mean, at IBM, I mean, everywhere. everywhere I mean, so well, there are many people in AI that think that, uh, you know, the purpose of AI is to augment our intelligence. So, why not call it so that's why 
at IBM at some point, they didn't want to use artificial intelligence because it was kind of misleading, as if you were creating another thing by itself and so on. So at some point, they called it AI, but it was augmented intelligence. Augmented. And now they said, okay, let's call it AI, artificial intelligence, but what we mean is augmenting human intelligence. Okay. So we have our own um, uh, form of intelligence, which brings intuition, asking the right questions, uh, judgment, you know, um, and the AI has other things that it can do much better than us. So this complementarity can bring the things together, but with the goal of not making us a machine, but using the machines to help us being better humans. Whatever we want, we can define that. We're not going to disappear. We are going to be enhanced. So I have this optimistic view. Of course, you have to be careful in doing this teaming AI and humans. You have to be careful in the issues that can come out. You have to be careful in making the machines understand what humans want and not vice versa. You have to be careful in making the machine speak the language that we speak and not the opposite. Uh, and so uh, it really has to be an enhancement of ourselves and not us having to you know, do, come to terms with machines. Do the machines desire things? Do they want things, do you think? If you tell, I mean, well, the machine I mean, has a goal to, is, to achieve. We, we, know what, <clears throat> we know that natural selection is a natural process. Mm -hmm. So um, this sounds very science fictiony, and I wouldn't have thought, I mean, 10 years ago, I would have thought this was total nonsense. But machines that can learn how to replicate themselves, or I mean, not the machines as much as the uh, algorithm, the programs, if they can learn how to replicate themselves in the world, then natural yeah. selection takes over. Uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, one of the founders of Wired Magazine, wrote a book, uh, What Technology Wants. And uh, it's the old adage, you know, if, uh, if uh, all you have in a, is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. Yeah. Um, and so th there, is a, there is a way that, you know, the machines in our lives, um, whether it's a car or whether it's a computer or, you know, uh, uh, somewhat direct our behavior. Well, that's the autonomous technology thesis, and it's certainly the case in medicine, uh, the, the machinery becomes more elaborate. <coughs> it takes a lot of effort, but it can be done to get a control over the utilization of those machines. So I think, I mean, we keep talking about we as if that means something. Um, <laughs> because I don't... Human. Well, human, but human. we're all individuals, right? There's a lot of individuals. I'm not going to, <laughs> you know, leave my body and go into a machine. I'm not going to let somebody else make me into a machine. And if people think yeah. that way, then who's, who is the we that's going to do it? Yeah, so that's... So now we're on the same page here. I'm saying, and I, you seem to agree with that, that... Uh, we need to look at those proposals and be critical of them. We shouldn't just get on this kind of buy into it without any critical analysis. Let me remind all of us that when Nick Bostrom started the whole conversation at least 15 years ago, nobody spoke about the dangers of AI. In his most recent book, 2015, on superintelligent machines, only there, he, even he begins to doubt or begins to admit that there may be some things that we don't want to happen with artificial intelligence. Yeah. But 15 years ago, he did not even 
entertain the possibility that there may be some uh, malicious AI. <laughs> so now they're busy doing friendly AI. If you read the New York Times just a few days ago, there is an essay precisely on that topic. I have it here. Uh, and just, uh, where is it? Um, yes, how to make AI human friendly. So my <coughs> problem is, why didn't they listen to the critics uh, 15 years ago? Because 15 years ago. years ago, AI was not so pervasive. It was not so impactful on our life and society. 15 years ago, we didn't have uh, enough computing power and enough data to make AI learn and be aware of the environment and be used in the uncertainty of the world. So there was no, no, there was no, no issue because AI was not really giving, was only used in very controlled environments. <laughs> now, instead, it's different, so that's huh? why people think about these issues. Are we too late? Fifteen years no. ago, I, I wrote an essay in which I said, uh, uh, artificial intelligence that could drive a car across town and park it in a parking lot would pass the Turing test. That would be, that would be for me, proof of its intelligence in the way that, you know, even more than the, the traditional Turing test. Of course, now that's, that's doable. Um, I, 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 I don't... Um, so one of the things that interests me is the, the limits, and I've written about this as well, the limits of, of uh, uh, computation and the possible limits of uh, the genetic engineering as well, that these are complex systems, and uh, the more complex the system gets, the more you start pushing against uh, you know, nonlinear dynamics and uh, unpredictability. Well, I mean, and so the, the, the genome I understand to be a, a bureaucracy, not a, not a <laughs> bunch of on-off switches. And, and uh, it, within, within computer science, I'm not an expert in this, there are uh, problems that can't be solved. There are problems that, uh, because you can't write an algorithm for it, and then there are other problems that are just too hard to solve. And I, I just wonder whether, whether in these two domains, we might be running up against a, com so a the, complexity horizon. These two domains have, are joining. And the brain as well, I would say, is also yeah. another potentially. Yes, and those three domains are, are joining forces. I mean, deep learning now, nobody knows how these algorithms work. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, if nobody knows, oh, there's a bit of a black box, but somebody had to set up the black box to work, and they have to put data into it, and they have to. Yeah, but if you ask why you did something, why you made a certain decision, I mean, it's still a bit opaque. I mean, in some cases, you can go back to the kind of training data that allowed to make that decision, but you know, it's still a bit opaque. Much more opaque than traditional logic-based AI systems, which, however, which were much less accurate and, than and, deep and, learning. And now there's a reproducibility problem in yeah. some of the AI, so, yeah. you know. And, uh, and there should be. Uh, okay, why? I mean, well, first of all, <laughs> if you're talking about deep learning, there's many, many hidden layers in, in the process of uh, the machine learning how to recognize things. So like, you, you give it a lot of data and you give it some algorithms and... Yeah, and but, it, you don't, and it, but, it's, but Do people you can't know how deep learning the works? There is a... Go ahead, explain it. I, no, I mean, it's very simple. I mean, it's a, not in the details of the algorithm, but it's very, very simple. So if you want um, an algorithm that can recognize whether in a picture there is a cat or a dog, 
okay? So you give it a picture and you want this algorithm to say whether it's a cat or a dog, okay? So what you do, you start with an algorithm that is behaving very randomly, okay? Doesn't know anything. And you start giving a lot of examples. Me, what, are, what is one example? An example is one picture and the information that I give to the algorithm that I say whether in that picture there is a cat or a dog, okay? So I say, this is a picture, this is a cat. This is a picture, this is a dog. This is a picture, this is a cat. And I give a lot of these examples. And then the algorithm, by looking at one example after the other one in sequence, uh, at the beginning is kind of random, and then it starts tuning its parameters in a way that it learns this relationship between pictures and whether it's, there is a cat or a dog there. At the end of this, uh, that we call the training phase, you have an algorithm that has some parameters tuned in a certain way that hopefully has learned the relationship between pictures and these two animals and can able, is able to generalize it to picture that he has never seen before. So now you give it another picture, you don't tell if it's a cat or a dog, and possibly the algorithm will be able to recognize whether there is a cat or a dog. And usually with this algorithm, if you give it enough data, but not just enough data, if you give it data which is diverse enough, inclusive enough of all the possible situations, then the algorithm is able to generalize. And many deep learning approaches to, for example, automatic vision, like recognizing what is in a picture and so on, right now, a very small percentage of error. An error is always there, but the percentage of error is very, very small. So they are very, very good at generalizing. But you need a lot of data for training these examples, and you need a lot of computing power because of this amount of data that you have to deal with. So, so the idea is very simple. You learn by example, which, by the way, is something that AI people are trying to move forward from that. Because if you learn only from examples, the, the <coughs> relationship between input and output, then if you give it another task, which is very similar to that, but not exactly the same, you have to start this whole process from scratch. Because the algorithm has actually not learned general idea of what is a cat or what is a dog, but has just learned this input-output relationship. In other words, it's still stupid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But, well, yeah. uh, yeah, but that's uh, of course, of course, a two-year-old <laughs> could do that. Yeah. Um, so, what's the utility, and why should we be worried that that's going to take over the world? Uh, that's not going <laughs> to take over the world. Yes. It's a cat. <laughs> Just cats and dogs. Yes. So, I mean, basically, this is analogous to the genome. The genome, uh, each of us came from a single cell, and that single cell had information equivalent to six billion bits of uh, digital data. That's it. And somehow that cell with six billion bits of, in bits of information, you know, grew into each human being. And you change some of those bits and you become a mouse, not a human being. Or, you know, um, that, and that's an algorithm. We have, and we don't know how that works. Um, uh, evolution created this thing. Uh, in, in a sense, machine learning, you know, the process, it's, it's, um, there are lots of hidden layers that uh, we're not telling the machine how to learn. It's just learning from what you're, you're giving it. And what's happening with the genome uh, and what continue to happen is using, using the, the computational tools uh, to be able to see perturbation, how perturbations in the genome uh, um, affect the output, the, the final output. How many human genetic diseases have been identified? 
Uh, simple genetic diseases? Well, you could do... 6,000? Well, I, I mean, diseases are not a good categorization. I mean, they are... Okay. It's, it's, you know, you can... Yeah, I mean, there, there are hundreds of thousands of, of mutations that can cause various diseases. Lee has started a company called GenesPeak. GenePeaks. GenePeaks, that um, does pre-pregnancy screening uh, to uh, identify, you know, what would be a good match. How how uh, how, how uh, reliable? I mean, how many what, how many uh, traits are you screening for, and how reliably? So uh, you know, I'm, well, I, know, so I, know I know this is used extensively in um, in uh, Hasidic Orthodox Jewish communities for for certain uh, uh, recessive uh, diseases, but. Tell us yeah, a little bit I mean, about, so about I, where, where this is leading. The technology has exploded. Um, so just a couple of years ago, you could look at you know 20 diseases first, 100. We now look at 7,000, and um, we look at we we create we take a, a presumptive mother and. F People who want to be a mother and a father and take their DNA. It's digital information. Then we create virtual babies, virtual genomes. But you don't really know who's, who's contributing the genes. It's 50-50. Well, we, we create lots of virtual babies from a couple. And what do the virtual babies look like? Uh, well, so just, just we, DNA. we see whether they have disease or not. Yeah. Right. No, but the question is, okay, are there any limits? I'm talking primarily about ethical limits to this kind of screening uh, Well, process. so in my view, uh, they should, people should be able to do what they want with their own data. No, but what's the goal of this analysis? So you take two people, the DNA of two people, you yep. understand what are most, well, you many possibilities. Of, and then they can, if they want, they yeah. can use that information to avoid disease by picking How? an embryo, pick an embryo that doesn't have the genes causing disease. Those in vitro fertilization, um, they start with a bunch of embryos. They pick so you the generate these, these offsprings, not just virtually, not just on a computer saying this is the DNA that can come out, but as embryos. That's for them to decide. Ah, okay. We give them the information so okay. they can do that. Okay. How do you encounter this in, in hospitals today, Stephen? Uh, clearly, um, there is a counter-cultural critique of the perfect baby notion, which is subjectively defined. Um, and that's really the disability model. So people like Adrian Ash, for example, but many others have claimed that with our constant uh, urge to uh, enhance the lives and the lifespans that we bring into the world, um, that we, 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 we eliminate the, the virtue of tolerance, of uh, inclusion of a common or a shared humanity. And we begin as a culture to select certain traits uh, which become definitive of a human being having any kind of moral considerability. Uh, it, it becomes, uh, if you will, sort of neo-eugenic. Well, now that may not be the case, yeah. but that's the, the disability critique is that 
we, we benefit when we have quote unquote imperfection in the world because it teaches us to be more inclusive and to be understanding that in fact there are deeper things in community than hypercognitive values, hypercognitive achievements, and so forth. So the first thing I think it's very important to point out is that the perfect baby is fiction. There is, there's no such thing as a perfect baby. My mom thought I was. <laughs> All parents think <laughs> that. <laughs> right? no. um, and that's not what, I mean, that's not what people are doing right now. Right. All they're trying to do is, you know, prevent a disease, disease. or, right. you know, provide resistance to a disease. I mean, that's not perfection. And I think it's really, I think people who are against the technology, they use this, and it's, it's a red herring. I mean, it's not what we're doing. And there never will be a perfect baby. Right. So can I comment on this though? So I actually agree with what you just said because in my view, um, I, I don't really engage in the transhumanist conversation at high philosophical levels. To me, it's all incremental. So we're going to have successful anti-aging. I was looking at a remarkable piece of work going on now as of, well, 2016 at the Mayo Clinic and at Scripps where they're using an agent which combines chemotherapy and a plant dye, believe it or not, and they're actually eliminating senile cells from the kidneys of individuals with uh, failing kidneys. They've been incredibly successful in mice. Now this is therapeutic. Um, uh, we're, 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 we're doing things therapeutically that then will look pretty good as generalized enhancements, right? We'll all want to keep our organs from becoming senile, if you will. And similarly, the, the National Institute on Aging is devoting 55% right now of its budget strictly to the science of anti-aging. Now, that's why, because they've given up, frankly, on finding solutions to many of the chronic illnesses, the main precipitating uh, or risk factor for which is age itself. I mean, 100 years ago, the, you know, people got dementia because of syphilis, right? Now that they're living into their 70s and 80s, the, you know, the, the, it's age itself, which, and, and of course, Alzheimer himself wasn't sure if he discovered a disease. He actually thought that he discovered a natural part of human senile aging. So, so we're, we, because we, we've gotten to this kind of midway point where we're all living longer on average, we're so much more subject to these many diseases of, of old age, including cancer and so forth, that maybe uh, the solution, so the NIA thinks, is to actually figure out, you know, telomerically and in other ways, what the process of senescence is. And if we can turn that around, okay, maybe we'll be living to be, on average, 112 years old, or maybe 110, depending on who you talk with. Uh, you know, people do talk, discuss these things. But if we can compress morbidity, and we can get rid of these chronic illnesses, uh, that would become an enhancement, but a valuable enhancement. So in many of these areas, uh, uh, genetics, anti-aging, uh, even psychiatry and so forth, I think that we start trying with, with the attempt to address a therapeutic need, and then it just spills over because it's a good thing. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes, I mean, that's, a lot that's, of sense, but usually that's human. The boundary no. between therapy and enhancement is very 
blurred and it's very fluid. It is. Uh, you're saying that it's kind of a natural growth, that once we figure out the therapeutic stuff, it becomes enhancement. I don't think that that's where it... It tends to, it tends to. Well, maybe, but a lot of time it's this, um, the enhancement, but I would call it an ideology, this ideological thrust, this kind of We've got to be enhanced. If you're not enhanced, there's something wrong with you. And don't you dare stand in the process. I'm quoting actually Hugo uh, de Garris, the mm -hmm. Australian transhumanist, who said, don't you stand in the middle of this process of becoming perfect. So they use the, con the concept of perfection. That's what they want. But it's they're, just, just they're just ideologues. I mean, Aubrey de Grey, you know, by the way, he doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a position. He's not even a scientist. He's just a guy who hangs out in coffee shops in Cambridge. He's never... No. Anymore. He's in the United States and he's, he's now yeah. uh, uh, funded by the Methuselah. Well, that, oh, well that's, that's true, but, but, but I, I mean, I, I, I won't say anything more about, about Arby. I mean, I, I don't know him too well. I've, I've encountered him a number of times. Uh, I think these people are, are sort of, you know, what should I say? They're like adolescents in a, in a, in a, in a science <laughs> class at age 14 and some crazy idea comes along and they think, oh my God, that's it. And, and they have no connection with the narrative of the, the human experience to be able to think critically about it, which is your point. So just, just to develop this conversation one more bit here. I wrote uh, the other day to a friend of mine, Francisco Cardeso Comes de Matos, who's the world's leading uh, South, uh, he's a linguist, he's, he's incredibly well known, and, and uh, I asked him to reflect on transhumanism, and here's what he wrote back in an email. Um, this is from uh, Recife, Brazil. Um, human health enhancing, question mark. Human dignity elevating, question mark. Human mind expanding, question mark. Uh, you know, Job slept on my floor at Reed College, and he never let his kids play with computers growing up. Uh, human spirituality probing, question mark. Human creativity amplifying, question mark. You know, you should take a look at Delaney Rustin's great video, Screenagers, the movie, about how we're struggling with creativity and, and, and somatic learning and memory and knowledge and so forth. It's very interesting. Human peaceful nature strengthening. Human interaction facilitating. Human sciences integrating. So those are just reflections from someone down what in does, South America. Yeah, what does question mark mean? Yes, That's what does right. it mean? Well, he's, he's, he's optimistic. Well, they're, well, they're the questions that you're asking, Hannah, yeah. you know, that we need to think carefully about, about these possibilities. But are possibilities. those things that are, you know, that would be welcome or well, not? Well, he's, he's wanting us to question them. He's wanting well, us I know, to ask I the think, question. I think the implication is that those would all be positive. Yeah. And the question is, does transhumanism... Right, well, as, right, right. he's as, raising... Be, he's either raising, as an ideology or as actual technology. He's, he's, he's raising many doubts about the transhumanist What's ideology right? because he doesn't think that it's attending necessarily... Now, I'm not ruling it out, but he's saying... His, his sense is that it's not attending to the most important elements of, shall we say, human enhancement and human, if you will, perfectibility, yeah. which has to do with uh, character traits, right. uh, uh, dig dignity, uh, empathy. You know, I have a, I have a close friend. Um, in, intelligence. Right. Well, let me just say that I, I have a close friend who's 90 years old, and she was my dorm mother at a high school in New Hampshire. She lives in Martha's Vineyard. She's got one grandson. 
Grandson's 12 years old. He was literally raised on screens, okay, unfortunately. And she took her daughter uh, and her grandson to the Swiss Alps for a vacation. And she came back and she called me just this December and she was in tears because she said her grandson has absolutely no empathic qualities, cannot interact, cannot even uh, make eye contact. And she was so frustrated, she said it was the worst nightmare of her entire life. Hmm. But that's and so, why, yeah. so that's what that's what we're asking is is whatever it is is it dignity enhancing now some of these things including you know you know by the way some of the genetic ideas are not contrary to human dignity by any means I don't mm -hmm. want to say mm -hmm. that they are but these are the the deeper questions that yeah. you but need the, to be asking the, the point is uh, I think the discussion is at many levels and I'm not clear because we talk about increasing lifespan which is one thing uh, creating immortality, it's another thing. Becoming all of us just computers and algorithms is yet another thing. But the thing that you are talking about, Francesca, has to do more with AI and the dangers of AI. Well, not the dangers, I would not put it that way. Problems <laughs> it. I would put AI helping us to enhance our own traits and all those things with the question marks, I would say, yes, we can do that. If you are careful enough, we can do all of those. And they should be welcome. But I thought what because uh, with you, with our creativity enhanced, our traits enhanced, so we can do much more uh, scientific discoveries. We can discover cure for many more diseases. No, no, and we this know and that. that. So, but what you were saying also, I yeah. thought, was that we need to be aware of the potential problems and dangers yeah. in order to not end up in a place we yes. don't want to end up. Yes. The fact is that the grandson of your friend right. has already ended up there. Yes. So there was no way to prevent it. And part of the issue seems to me in trying to say we can in fact figure out what the problems would be is we may not be able to figure out, just well, as we didn't know what the effect of Google media, on us would be, media. social media right. on us would be, what the effect right. of the iPhone right. or the telephone would be on us. So only after Afterwards. the fact we are saying. Yeah. Right. So it's retrospective. And now you know, people are saying, well, maybe we shouldn't buy into the MacArthur ideology of doing away with teachers in the grade schools and just having people on iPads. Maybe we should be more thoughtful about it. The American Journal of Pediatrics had an entire volume devoted in December to the problem of uh, raising children and getting them into basic social skills. And so we, so now the, t the suggestion is, well, maybe we should hold off until they're 10 or 11 no, before they're... No, but let's look at this. Now yeah. we are going to have driverless cars. Yeah. It seems to be, from everything I hear, around the corner. So to speak. What are going to... <laughs> Unfortunately. What, 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 what are going to be the... What are going to be the consequences of having driverless cars? What is going to be the consequence on our ability to drive or on our ability to do other physical things? What is going to be the consequence in terms of traffic situations? What is going to be the consequence economically? What's going to be the consequence in terms of insurance companies? In other, and some of these things you can think ahead. Right. But it seems to me there are parts of it you cannot think until it's, you're dealing with it already. It's too late. 
Well, well it's too not late. too late, late but you can't think about it until yeah. you, yeah, until you can, but you've had some experience. Point and that uh, the whole conversation has various themes or strands in it. And it's very hard to really differentiate between them. And it's very hard also to debate with transhumanists because when I ask, you know, I, I attack them on one issue and say, oh no, I didn't say A, I actually believe in B. So okay, you go to B and say, oh, I don't believe in B, I believe in C. So it's kind of a moving target. It's very, very hard to pin down what's going on. In other words, they don't really, take ownership of the consequences that will come about if their dream, if that social imaginary will come to be a reality. Well, I don't know. I mean, there is this book I was talking to, uh, and I mentioned to you, and I was talking to Francesca about by Max Tegmark. It's focused on how we can prevent. Life 3.0. Yeah, mm -hmm. how we can prevent some of the complications. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, th there is an effort to think about it, and I think there's more of a focus yeah. to no, but worry you're about. right that uh, people now think a lot about these issues and how to resolve them because there have been issues that have been shown in some examples. So it was like a trial and, you know, and uh, and you are right, maybe maybe one should have thought it at the beginning, but it was impossible to predict or very, very difficult. So we saw some issues and now we say, oh, okay, so let's rethink from scratch. You know, how are we going to develop AI now? How are we going to design exactly. the AI and embed in the design itself, not just at the end and check how it behaves at the end, but embed since the design phase this issue that it should not be biased, that it should be fair, that it should be explainable, that it should all these things that you want the AI to have in order to not have these collateral uh, uh, negative aspects. But remember, but the people who raised those critiques yeah. were dismissed as bioconservatives way back, at least 15 years ago. You were bioconservatives. How can you raise those problems? All the people who spoke about the perils of technology were just dismissed offhand. Yeah. Now it turns out that they were closer to the truth probably than the, than the techno-optimists. Look, it's a tough balance because you don't want yeah. to say, okay, no more technology, no more advancement, we are happy the way Correct. it is, let's stay here. On the other hand, there are things that are constant improvements, what yeah. uh, you were talking about, and what they're doing now, for example, in psychiatry, where somebody gives blood and you can tell from the blood what medications will be working properly or better than others, what they would metabolize better than others, so that these are useful. Uh, but there is, however, the issue that I think you were alluding to is, are there other things that could be dangerous and is it possible to prevent those? And I think some may be so and some, some so. may be But I think that uh, now we are in a better position than 15 years ago because 15 years ago uh, the silos of different disciplines were much more uh, well defined. You know, technologists on one side, sociologists on the other side, economists mm -hmm. on the other side, <laughs> and they were rarely talking to each other. Now I regularly work and organize events with all these people. 
the AI dis- people yeah. together with psychologists, Good. sociologists, you know, and 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 how many humanists? How many humanists do you include in the interdisciplinary I don't know, maybe conversation? Maybe we should. Maybe we should have more. So and what I'm saying is, I really see a change in that, and no. that's what makes me optimistic no. that we can solve because AI right. people can find maybe technical solutions to issues, but the definition and the understanding and the identification of the issues should be done together with everybody okay, else. So if you bring the humanist perspective into, and I'm very, <coughs> very happy to hear what you just said, but if you bring the humanist perspective, the humanist uh, scholar into this conversation, into the mix, and the humanist would say, you know what, there is a dimension which is non-measurable, non-allegorizable, non-reductionable, or non-reducible, uh, what do you do with that? Are you saying to this guy, you know what, this is nonsense? Or are you saying, no, I really have to take take you seriously. Let me figure out how the non-observable, the non-reducible, how do I fit it into my analysis? That's a challenge. Go go ahead and uh, tell us what you think that is. Yeah, one example. Well, you the wrote soul. a book called God by Whatever Names, right? I'm happy to talk about a soul as an emergent phenomenon. Okay, uh, so, so talk uh, about the soul. Is, uh, that's fine. Uh, I, I don't know how you call it. You can call it soul. You can I, call I, I it God. You, you can call you it can, psyche. You can call it all sorts you, of things, right. which will be problematic for the people who are doing the, this kind of work. And all I'm saying that I would like to see these people at least admit the possibility of the non-reducible dimension, the non-materialist the non-allegorizable, the non-mathematical. You cannot mathematize everything. Why why are you saying non-materialistic? Because there is, because I do believe that not everything can become into an algorithm. But that's different from non-materialistic. Yeah, it could be something else. Okay, so. And you're, you're the embodied woman. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, am the, I am the embodied woman. Actually, if you know the book, I, I don't know if you read this book by uh, George uh, Zakardakis. No. It's, a, it's about AI, and his argument is actually, you see that there's no contradiction There's one in my book position. on AI a day, almost. Yeah, I believe you. Uh, so the, this particular book, he's arguing that the AI project has been mistaken because it was basically based on mind-body dualism. And what he's telling us, that we need to go back from a platonic position, which undergirded the entire project, to an Aristotelian position that takes the body into, into account from the very beginning. In other words, the AI, the artificial intelligence, has to think through the body, or like the body thinks, not like the mind thinks, as we think the mind thinks, but as the body thinks. It's a very interesting argument, but if that's the case, it goes against what transhumanism is trying to accomplish. So, Two things I want to say. Um, first is that um, in what AI was uh, conceived of 30 or 40 years ago, like the AI project, as you call it, um, I think is different than what scientists, I mean, scientists are just basically, it doesn't matter if the artificial intelligence algorithms match what actually happens okay. in the brain. It's, you know, whatever works to, to be able to solve problems. It's problem solving. That's Like all the is. typical analogy that is at the beginning of every AI textbook is that uh, uh, planes fly. But they don't fly like bears fly, you know, they don't fly there, you know, but still they do fly. 
So, so it, it, what is it's, not it's not necessary to have some form of intelligence or to be able to help ourselves to be monitored that they have to replicate our way of, you know, doing Yeah, things. I think there's just, I mean, I think the point is what we, we use AI now, we're not trying to replicate um, an intelligence, trying to solve problems. Um, the second thing I wanted to come back to is this, the transhumanism and it just the, the, the notion of uh, what Billy said, that uh, we're always transitioning human-wise. I mean, 100,000 years ago, um, uh, people didn't have writing yet. They didn't have the brains that were able to, to you know, uh, produce novels or anything like that. I mean, they didn't wear clothes until 70 or 80,000 years ago. And, you know, this evolution took place and so humans yeah. have been transitioning sure. Yeah, the difference is that transhumanism is for what they call and it's a directed evolution. Yeah. It's not evolution, it's directed evolution, it's controlled evolution, it's actually accelerated so, evolution. So, That's the whole point so, of the so, Well, I, the so, question is, who's directing it? So, so I have a question. Ted Chu, read the, read the books uh, by Ted Chu, if you know Ted Chu's work. But, and but, and, and but, his goal is to create us what he calls Kobe's. Kobe's but, but, are... But I think it's really critical to ask the question, when you say it's directed evolution, is that being directed by a society, like in the, you know, Actually, all the Well, dystopic? I would say it's directed by those who take control of the process of engineering. It's the engineer, those who will engineer uh, I, the process, so, they will be in the so, position of directing So I, I want to take a big, big history perspective on this. Uh, the sun is going to be a reliable partner on, for complexity on Earth for about two billion years. And uh, that's a really big future. And uh, there's no reason, based on what we know about the past, to think that our species unchanged will be here forever. That, I mean, we might be here for, our descendants might be here for two billion years. They have a possibility of living on this planet without, without science fiction traveling uh, light years with technology that we don't have and may never have. So the planet is a pretty amazing place, and uh, it's already had a, a really amazing journey, and our species has got its problems. But what, what, I mean, isn't it just take it for granted that we're going to evolve into something different? And, okay. and, and, and that they may or may not call themselves humans. Um, they, I mean, we're, we're already a domesticated species compared to 100,000 years ago. Um, so, uh, and how it happens, uh, even if it's quote-unquote engineered, it still has to work. It has to have, it has to be selected. It has to have function. Uh, and a, a, a certain amount of dysfunction will be in there too, for sure, and there'll be unintended consequences. But, so, I, I, don't, I don't have a, I, I, uh, I, I don't want to see it through, through the lens of utopia or dystopia, because I think those are, are dangerous uh, tropes to get into. No, hold uh, on, hold on. Yeah, uh, but, but, I, yeah. but, but I just, the, the point is that, of course we're going to evolve. Uh, yeah, but there's a difference. Evolution is a process. It's a very slow process. It's a process that... No, not necessarily. Nobody, nobody knows really what's going on, but they claim that they can control the process. I don't want them to control it. No, but that's but, natural but, evolution. But, but, but He's talking yeah. about Julia evolution Frisco, more read, generally. Read but the process is based on reproduction. Who controls reproduction? the women who reproduce. 
Yeah. Right, as long as the women have the freedom to reproduce, <laughs> That's a big question. it's not the engineers. It's, yeah. I mean, I'm in this field, right? I know it's women controlling. If they want to give their child a gene which prevents disease, or they want to avoid, I mean, it's, the women are doing it. Now, that's one way, right? So, you know, directed evolution could be each individual woman or couple. Culture has been directing human mating for a long time. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I think you're talking about a societal. Yeah, but, on, but on this point, I mean, just because it's a very immediate segue, and then please go on. But, but that's where um, Leon Cass and Hans Jonas come in, because they would tell you that. Uh, I mean, Leon Cass wrote an interesting book. I don't agree. I was his TA for a while, but it's called Toward a More Natural Science. And his argument is that all of the things we really think matter in the quality of our human experience at the family and at the level of community, all of it somehow has to do with the evolution of empathy. Uh, as Aldous Huxley said at the end of his life when someone asked him for some advice for the younger generation, he said, well, it's a little embarrassing because I've written so many books, but I would say try to be a little <coughs> kinder. Uh, kindness, compassion, empathy, uh, attentive listening, all these kinds of virtues are really critical. And where do they emerge from? Well, evolutionary biologists and evolutionary psychologists will spin this a little differently, but fundamentally from the fact that we are a reproductive species, that uh, 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 humans invest greatly uh, in their offspring, uh, who are dependent for very protracted periods of time compared to any other species. And so, so a lot of these things that we view, you know, altruism and so forth, all the noble aspects of the human endeavor really really emerge from this kind of turning over of the generations. So if you move, he would say, toward uh, something that is strongly anti-aging, uh, for example, in Japan, by the way, they, I mean, they are living <laughs> really long, but they're not reproducing much. She well, said. That, that's why the population's going down. That's, that's, that's right. It's so, the opposite of so, what people thought. Yeah, yeah, and so Are the they investment, less kind but, but, because of that? Well, parental investment, well, I won't, I won't go, I w that's not quite the question. I mean, the, 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 the issue is that, that so much, of, this is what Tolkien pointed out. This is why... Uh, you know, Erwin separates herself from, from the immortality of the elves so that she can experience the love of a child and so forth. So that's really important. That's a natural evolutionary dimension. It's not, and, and for Cass and for Hans Jonas, um, that dimension is something that is imperiled by uh, anti-aging technologies which would be humanly directed. Now, on the other, I'm not, a, but understand, I'm so concerned about these chronic illnesses associated with old age that I can actually tolerate a little transhumanism. <laughs> I see Leon where you're could. going with it, but, but yeah. we forget what they really want. What, let's go back to the telos. The telos is, I'll put it very bluntly, it's to make the human biological species obsolete. That's what it's about. It's about the planned obsolescence of the human species. That's what it is for Ted Chu, for Julio Prisco, for Nick Bostrom, for all the people who write in that 
genre. You can say, okay, they don't really matter because they don't really do the science. They just popularize a certain kind of uh, myth. What, what, what difference does it make? Yeah, well, oh, I, it makes a lot of so difference I, I, because, I, I, because I, I, it affects I, the culture. Even if ideologies are true, <laughs> it, it makes a lot of difference. They can still be wrong. They can still have a... Yeah, so, so I don't read those people. I have to be good. Uh, but this is, this I mean, is I what the discourse is, is made out of. Why, yeah. why do you think humans as currently defined, why do you think it's so essential mm -hmm. that we stay the way... Okay, yeah. that's, that's a... That's the term a yeah. we, but why does the species have to stay yeah, so there? I, and then we're going to open up for questions. And then we open up for questions. So here is, I guess, it depends kind of where you come from, right? So I come from the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, we, as well as in the Islamic and the Christian traditions, we do talk about creation in the image of God. So one argument, you can dismiss it. You can say, who cares about what religions say? But if you do care about what religions say, you can say, well, there's something really precious about being human. And being human comes with all those vulnerabilities and limitations and kind of warts and all. We are not perfect. It's not about perfection. And we perfection. never will be perfect. And thank God we're not going to be perfect. We shouldn't aspire for that kind of perfection. We should aspire more to perfection along the lines that Steve proposed, which is the tradition of Aristotelian and religious tradition. Talk about virtue, talk about character, talk about morality. Talk In, in that sense, yes, but there's a lot ways, of room. in some ways, religion has always been against the kind of progress that we are No, that's absolutely about. not true. No? Not in the Middle Ages, for sure. Me, most, I, I will have to take uh, issue with you here. In Actually, many of the people who were doing the forefront of science in the 13th and 14th century were all religious people. Yeah, but Muslim, well, how Christian were they, Jews. How were they handled? Yeah, I know they were religious, but how were they, how, how were they accepted? Galileo. They as far as I know, Thomas Aquinas is the most important Catholic yes, how thinker. how was Galileo so. handled? <laughs> And, and, and Ibn Rush, the same thing. Maimonides, the same thing. So it's not the case that the religious person was always kind of dismissed by... Uh, no, not I, always. But I, or that, that they dismissed, before, that they dismissed yeah. the other that people. That was before no. Darwin. So, Fair I mean, enough. Darwinianism is an important right. turning point. The absolutely. realization that 100,000 years ago, the human species was different than it is today. Yeah. I mean, that didn't come... In, that notion did not come but, to existence. Well, what I was saying, by the way, doesn't have much to do with religion. Um, you know, I remember looking back now 30 years when my wife and I had our first child and I, we, we went home and my wife, my sister, my older sister observed me for a while and a couple of days into this she said, you know, Stevie, I never really liked you until you became a father. <laughs> Which is a great compliment. But what she saw was she saw that, uh, that somehow my being had expanded in, in, in the care of a child and and uh, there was a growth. Now, I don't think that's everybody's journey by any means. Don't get me wrong. But, but, but simply <coughs> stated, many of the key assets that we feel make a human life meaningful uh, and not narcissistic, not I, it, but I, thou, are related to the natural evolutionary trajectory. Now, when you get an Aldous Huxley talking about a brave new world where you sort of engineered that it's, it is dystopian out of out of the picture. Then what what do you have left? And that right. that would be the question. So the, so the so so again. But uh, but it's. I don't want to go any further with it. But I do think it's it doesn't hang on a religious argument. Let's take some questions from the audience. Wonderful. And I'll go around. I'm going to start on this side. Uh, I ask you to be uh, brief. Uh, if you're going to make a comment, make it short. If you're going to make a question, and then I'll I'll, I'll go. Yes. I'm sorry. Well, yeah. Go ahead and stand up close to your name, please. Uh, Stuart Dambrot, uh, just brief background. Brief. 
um, research fellow at uh, Artificial General Intelligence Society, research fellow at Brain Machine Interface mm -hmm. Consortium, uh, do work with uh, uh, autonomous systems at IEEE. Um, I'm ridiculously interdisciplinary and, and uh, I also focus a lot on ethics. So, um, it's a kind of a basic question, really, because we don't have time to go into the technical details. But if, for example, Hava, uh, you had uh, a young person in your family or someone who was still uh, in utero and it was known that they, they were going to express with, um, let's say, a fatal heart condition, yeah. but CRISPR-Cas9 could be used to prevent that, would that be something yeah. you'd be comfortable with? Yeah, actually, I'm going to speak precisely okay. on that issue. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so now, how is that different uh, when writ large of the transhumanism con uh, discussion we're having? Yeah. Uh, so, because that's already been done. A paper about two months ago, uh, in utero child, had a genetic um, uh, anomaly that was going to express as with heart failure at some point in his or her, I forget the sex of the, uh, of the fetus, uh, young life. Yeah. So why is that not extensible to the major objections that you've been raising in this discussion? Yeah, that goes back to the issue of the separation, or at least the, the raising the uh, awareness that there is a difference between therapy and enhancement. So by the way, from the Jewish perspective, uh, Jewish perspective is very pro-biotechnology, very pro-CRISPR, including the very orthodox and even ultra-orthodox. Ultra they are very much for using gene editing or genome editing in order to solve that particular kind of, of a problem. I think there is still a difference between that and enhancement the way that Nick Bostrom and the rest of them speak about. So let me ask, so I... So, but there must be a threshold, I mean, because yeah, otherwise if you say, oh, we are humans also because our vulnerabilities are limited <coughs> and so on, then you would not even cure any disease because it's part so, of you. Yeah, so there must be a threshold that, where do you put that threshold? Well, so here, here's the problem. Yeah. The problem is that, you know, uh, Taking off of this CRISPR, uh, it may be possible to, to change the genes of a human being such that uh, a child would be born with a heart that was stronger and longer lasting than a normal human heart. Same thing with every other organ. Now, that's enhancement, right? So that, I agree with you that it's tricky here, Absolutely. and I agree that I don't, have, <laughs> I don't have a clear thing. What I don't like is the narrative, the enhancement narrative, the myth that we've been fed by those, uh, shall we say, prophets of transhumanism, uh, as if that would be the solution to all the problems. That's all I'm saying. Okay, we have to go much more. <laughs> A trial and error, and much more one, one at a time. Here's an example of something that, yes, the position would be positive. The unbelievable continued inconvenience to our fellow species. If we could change that, would that not be a valuable investment? Yeah. Absolutely would. Yeah, but, but you know, uh, okay. Nick Prostom used to say, let's try to solve stupidity we, in we the human species. We have about six or seven hands up, so we're yeah. going to keep moving. <laughs> yes, stand up and tell us your name. Um, my name's Todd Essig. I'm a psychoanalyst here in the city. And um, 
I really appreciated the comments about incrementalism and making things work. And I want to bring up uh, an issue um, of the fact that every enhancement always has a downside. It's impossible to have a technological advance that doesn't have a loss as well as a gain. And that one of the front lines for seeing the losses of technologies are our practices. And a, um, for example, um, I see many people who are using Adderall for enhancement purposes and their careers and relationships are being destroyed. Um, like your grandson, we see many people who are having their communications kind of enhanced by communications technology and their capacity for intimacy is being destroyed. Um, so I'd like the people who are kind of involved on the technological front lines to comment on how we can better communicate with you. So much of what medical ethics has been about, you know, there was a time when it was a horrible idea to think that someone didn't have to die with a tube in every orifice, natural and unnatural. And now 70% of people in hospitals die after treatment has been tried and withdrawn. And so we make progress and we have committees and we do case consultations and and so you begin to get a handle through experience, I mean, through experience. And no, you, you nobody can anticipate all of these possibilities coming on down the truck the track, but but as you as you deal with them as an active agent, you can make successes. But certainly, I mean, I, I really recommend Delaney Rustin's uh, movie Screenagers, which has been all over the country, just helping families begin to deal process-wise and psychologically with the struggle of getting the, getting some control over the kids' screen time, you know, which I guess was a problem when I was a boy because we wanted to watch TV all the time, right? You know, I, I just uh, th th throw in a comment. Yeah. A lot of this uh, stuff, the profit uh, that drives it is designed to appeal to, like, our, our brain stem, our hunter-gatherer brain. It's, it's meant to be addictive uh, intentionally. And uh, so, so it, it's, um, it's partly in the design oh, yeah. uh, and the profit motive of Google or Facebook or whatever yeah. uh, uh, to make these devices and their utilities. Uh, Cat scan stun at Brookhaven. You wanted to finish up one yeah, comment though. Um, yeah, in, in the medical area, there are M&M conferences and processes are built in. I'm not so sure those processes are currently built into AI development, right. into genetics development, yeah. and so the question is how can those processes be built in where those of us on the front lines <coughs> seeing the downside of technology yeah. be part of your creative process? Yeah. So yeah, I agree that uh, you know in all these multidisciplinary initiatives that I'm involved, I didn't see much presence of those like you that see the effect, may see some effects of the technology. So definitely I think that that should be more present um, uh, and like we have, for example we have put together a, a, a something which is called the partnership on AI that started from six companies but now has more than 60 partners of which only 30% are companies and then everybody else you know from various disciplines but I don't think there is any uh, uh, initiative or entity or organization that has to do psychoanalysis and the effect of the technology, so that definitely is something that should be there, and the goal is to build together best practices uh, in designing and developing yeah. AI, so that you know these negative effects are not there. And drawing the right boundaries, yeah. boundary creation is key. You know, I mean, the reason why physicians have the highest suicide rate of any profession per capita in the in the country right now 
and why 50% of them respond from coast to coast to surveys about satisfaction saying they'd quit if they, had, if they could afford to. I mean, this is serious stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of it is because, uh, you know, I mean, let's take email. Just take email, let alone electronic medical records. They're not connecting empathically with their patients, so they lose meaning. It becomes depersonalized. And also, they can't get away from it. They're, they're, the, the email is a machine. That's a machine. They're a human being. They need time away. They need to balance, but they can't get it. And so, in that, in that sense, boundary drawing in all these different areas is what's really important, and we're not very good at it sometimes. Um, one thing I'm surprised that I, you guys didn't get into is the coming deep integration of DNA from among different organisms, um, which is already happening. Um, you know, chimeric organisms are already here, but we're now getting to the point where we're going to have deeper integration of human DNA with that of other, you know, not just pigs in order to grow kidneys, which Bob Langer is doing up at MIT, but also, you know, we're going to get to the creation of new beings, uh, the integration of human DNA with that of other non-humans, and we will begin to see things that haven't existed before that have various characteristics, good and bad. So, sort of curious. Uh, that goes back to the environmental argument that I made, right? So, some environmentalists are really really uh, against that kind of, uh, that's the whole debate about uh, uh, GMOs, right? So from well, an environmental perspective, at least it's, uh, I would go against it. So, I mean, I think there, uh, there's, a, there's a speciest um, <laughs> reference there. I mean, if you look, actually look at chimpanzee DNA, most genes are identical to human genes. They're not human. DNA or still chimp what, DNA. 10% or what? Uh, what's With chimpanzees? Less? At, at, in the genes, less than 0.1% difference. And, and the conclusion, the, the, the philosophical well, I mean, uh, result saying, of well, that so what uh, data. What you're saying like. is we're going to take information. I mean, every, every yeah. organism, every living species is connected to so, other so, living species. So Lee, that already shows that there's something wrong with a completely geneticist bottom-up approach. Because we're not, we're significantly different than chimpanzees as well uh, as similar. 0.1 percent well, we of three billion chimpanzees. But but you know, I mean, if you go back to the New Atlantis, which is the whole the the the, the definitive initial statement of the biological revolution, right? Uh, uh, I mean, Bacon argued not only for fountains of youth, waters of youth, but he argued for uh, chimeras. And it's all there. It's all part of the vision. And, and I don't know uh, that you can get... I, I think it's inevitable that we'll move in that direction, personally. I, I, I think we're already incrementally halfway there, don't you? Uh, oh, it's already happening. In fact, nature's been doing it for Yeah. And if it can benefit, if it seems to be benefiting human beings, then uh, mothers will do it. No. Thank you. My name is August, and it's great conversation. Thank you very much. Probably one of the best here. And I just would like to point, I uh, recently read an article um, about aging. Physics make, makes aging inevitable, not biology. It's in Nautilus. You can read it was published in, in uh, February. Nanoscale thermal physics guarantees our decline, no matter how many diseases we cure.
It's not my opinion. It's scientific. <laughs> so that other, <clears throat> other article in Scientific American about fake surgeries, they, they um, uh, uh, make people sleep and then tell them they put, for example, a stent in the heart. And these actually make them as good as people with stents, with real stents. Stance. So even surgeries could have placebo effect. <laughs> and, uh, and so our integrations with machines also very questionable in this matter. And even um, hip replacement also exercises and weight loss um, in many experiments had much more effect, a much better effect than hip replacements. And <clears throat> Uh, and yes, and about AI and about our integration, my question about it. Don't, uh, we don't discuss problem with uh, phantom pain, for example, when people get lose legs, then still have pain. Or do you uh, understand when we, uh, we uh, it's a question about embodiment when we, without our body, uploaded some machine and we want to eat, or we want to have sex, or we want, no, just something to see. Don't you think that it will be the perfect prison when we can upload someone there and force leave them forever? Okay. Uh, the onus is on you. <laughs> there are some cognitive uh, capabilities that we don't have. So if you surround somebody with an incredible amount of data, our brain cannot handle that. Our brain, as we said, is very efficient, you know, but cannot handle that. So if you have to make a decision and you have a lot of data available to you, but you cannot handle it, you are going to make a decision with just a very small subset of, of uh, information. And so that you're going to make a decision, but probably will not be as good or whatever good means in that context as if you could find patterns and information and knowledge from all that information. So that's something that is not placebo, I think. It's something that cannot be replaced by, by something that we can do by ourselves. We have time. No. Okay. Infinite. <laughs> um, I'm Gilles, neuroscientist by training. Um, so in the face of the inevitability of the evolution of technology and the evolution of our species, which I think is a fact, um, I, I do see three, a major problem with the transhumanist movement, which is that overall it is rooted in low-complexity thinking. And by low-complexity thinking, I'm saying two things. First, it is reducing human reality to its biological component and its cognitive component, ignoring everything else, which is really considering very little about what we are. The second also is like it's really classically uh, offering simple uh, causalities. And it's having a really bad time to understand every, every single action in a much more complex environment. Which means that in the end, we have always this like, uh, uh, conversation about what are the consequences of the thing you, you think is so great. And, and the third thing is that it's completely 
ignoring the own emotional development of human beings. And if you have, you know, average human beings, all they want is to be stronger, to have a, a, a body that's going to attract more mates, to have a bigger penis, bigger, bigger boobs. We know human beings, right? We know what the kind of things we like when we want to be enhanced. So my question, <laughs> my question is this, is that- Speaking is there, as a man. Is there any hope of, of sort of like a, a neo-trans-humanist movement that would... Uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, whatever I said. Um, that would actually do the things that it took you 15 years to understand, which is that you cannot... And I'm really not taking it personally, right? I mean, don't, don't, it's not I you. hope. Um, which is that we know that any... Uh, technological improvement at that scale is going to have negative impact. So let's put together a transdisciplinary approach where we have like philosophers and psychologists and mm. everything. But is that like a, okay? So maybe you're going to say, yeah, it's a good idea. But do you think there is a real commitment in the world for that, not just like a good intention in this room? Well, I mean, there is commitment because uh, there are initiatives like the one, like the partnership of AI, it's one, but there are many initiatives and there, in the last two years, I think I've seen, I don't know, at least 10 or 20 institute centers that are multidisciplinary and they study exactly this, you know. Um, the fact that AI can, uh, has this goal, you say, of enhancing just our cognitive abilities and our um, uh, um, physical abilities I mean that's that's I mean we you are you are speaking as if AI is what has been done for the last 50 years and now it's done it's not done it's a continuously evolving technology uh, after all it's only 50 years old and uh, it's really evolving and trying to understand how better and better and with considering the uh, consequences as well, can help us. So I'm not, uh, it could be that the emphasis right, uh, until now was into enhancing uh, physical and cognitive uh, capabilities, but I, I don't think that that's the, that, that uh, AI people would say, oh, we only want to uh, help that. You know, that, that's more and more, and the more you are multidisciplinary, the more you understand these other dimensions, and then the AI people can also understand how to you know, relate to those other dimensions, I think. So would somebody like you engage Ben Gertzel, one of the major transhumanist AI who works I, on I this? I would engage with anybody, yes. <laughs> yeah, but they, <laughs> no, no, not precluding yeah, but any you, collaboration. I want this interdisciplinary conversation. I go with Nick Bostrom to, to, to events all the time, and I speak with him all the time. So, Good, so get yeah. him. Yeah, to move in your direction, then we'll be in better shape. So I would just have a real quick um, response in terms of actual transhumanism, in terms of our species um, evolving. Uh, it's, it seems to me that we can't, we can't stop it or let it go, and we have no idea where it's going to go. I mean, I disagree with this notion of directed evolution. No, but nobody's going to direct the evolution of the human species. It's just going to happen. It's not in our hands.
Amen, amen to that, but just tell this to Julio Prisco, who has a whole conversation <laughs> but, but, against what you just said. But they said have too. no power to control. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're they, like utilitarian somewhere. Correct. It's a utilitarian. You know, correct. Cre creating some sort of idea that does not apply to reality in a democratic yeah. society. So I'm sorry. If you want yes. to minimize their impact, go ahead and write against them. That's exactly yeah. what I've been doing. So we're running out of time. I'm going to ask that uh, the last show of hands one, two, three. Or, uh, That's we're it. not going to get it back there, sorry. Uh, and I'm going to just ask you each to make it really quick, and you guys hold your, hold your so you can write notes or whatever, and we're just going <laughs> to put it out there, and then we'll give you one last chance to respond. So uh, very quickly, please. Uh, my name is uh, Bernard Starr. I'm a recovering academic. <laughs> uh, several, several months ago, I published an article titled On the Verge of Immortality, or Are We Stuck with Death? Uh, based on a, uh, I'd say, a four-hour interview with uh, cellular biologist Leonard Hayflick, oh, yeah. who I'm sure many of you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, known for the Hayflick limit, who set lifespan at about 120 years. And he has a radically different position. Uh, he's more or less a naysayer on the prospects of uh, extensive life uh, 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 lifespan. And uh, it's a position that I haven't heard discussed here today. Uh, he uh, believes that, uh, more than believes, he asserts that we know virtually zero about cellular aging. Okay, and that most of the gains in longevity, aside from public health measures that were introduced at the turn of the last century, are based uh, primarily on the cure of diseases. And he says, while that's welcome and most of the funding is in that direction because that's what people demand and that's what the uh, NIH and other uh, uh, funding agencies tend to fund, uh, that oh, virtually nothing is spent on cellular aging at all, and that although we talk about diseases of old age, nobody really seriously addresses the question of why do cells age? And that he believes that there's a common factor at the cellular level that would uh, lead to a cure of all the diseases Hold your comments, we're going get, to get all the questions out there, please. My name is uh, Moshe, I'm a psychologist. I'm trying to build on the probably the point that Jill mentioned about uh, the idea of uh, um, artificial intelligence, technology, and basically happiness. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, we are just the beginning of, uh, of that technology and expansion, if it's cyber technology inside, outside, and realizing uh, how much you know of the people around us because of technology become addicted anxiety uh, you know exposed to that and so on and so forth for all the problems and it has a spirit in itself by the way that it's so hard to control and to imagine what's going to be especially with the, all the spirit of uh, singularity i was just curious to know about your perspective about that future that it's almost has a spirit in itself that how is that going to impact us if it's at all impossible to predict about our own happiness or maybe spirituality. Excellent. Thank you. And there was uh, one over here, two over here. Eric Paul, physics teacher. I was uh, wondering, there was a uh, artificial intelligence uh, program that um, 
detected an exoplanet. And the way it worked was that uh, this exoplanet uh, had been missed by humans. But, uh, but we had lots of examples of planets that had been detected by humans, and so the, uh, the program was taught to recognize a planet, and it recognized the planet better than humans could. So obviously that's a good thing. But I was wondering, how can we defend against uh, artificial intelligence when it might encroach on our privacy and be able to, uh, you know, find... Uh, let's say it's some kind of disability. Say somebody has a disability that isn't really something that is, uh, you know, uh, we should hold against them. And yet this artificial intelligence would be able to detect that. Um, how do we defend against that? And the last comment, question. Keep it brief, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Domizio Coutinho. Uh, I'm from Brazil. And uh, I'd like to have... Uh, a few questions of some comment on what I heard. I really uh, understand that uh, it's plausible and really uh, admirable endeavor that uh, you show to have, you know, looking for artificial intelligence. And no question about it, something desirable. But the question is, is there anything other than these that we should look for? We have from Plato a very important saying, Nosha yourself, get to know yourself. Nosha te ipsum. Do we know ourselves enough? We know you're made from about 70 billion atoms in our body. Is there anything here said about the importance of these extraordinary element in our life. Everything that moves, everything that's visible, everything that's around here is made and composed by atoms. What are these little, little ants, little ants in ourselves? By circumstantial, circumstantial, uh, uh, they, they circumstantial opportunities, made us here to be what we are. <coughs> they taught us everything we are. How to walk, how to talk, how to speak, how to think, how to say things. They did all this. When we're trying to improve ourselves, improve humanity, do we have to look for somebody else, any place else, other than those who are responsible for our existence here on Earth? And then if you do that, Cicero, the great orator in Rome, you say, cui bono? Who is going to benefit out of this first? The regular human being in the street, starved, is going to benefit from artificial intelligence primarily? It's up to us to answer that question. However, I would say that <laughs> this... <laughs> There's a lot of things that we, I, I'm an ex-marathon runner. Before I run 1,000 miles, I learned how to run 100 miles. If you are trying to get artificial intelligence, I will ask you, do you know how to deal with cancer? 
Do you know how to extinguish a fire that every year starts thousands and thousands of billions of billions of the United States, and you cross the army and do nothing about it? Okay. How about the storm? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, last round for everybody here. You can pick up on any, any or none of those pieces. Lee. So, I'd like to respond to the, um, the Hayflick effect. Um, and uh, that idea that there was a limit to the number of cell divisions, and so there was this limit, and you know, cells had couldn't go beyond the limit, and they and they um, uh, they died, and that that the consequence uh, is that it would mean that there's a limit to human life. Sorry. Right. right. Now, the, the several problems with that, that was all done before um, the realization of what genetic engineering could do. And um, genetic engineering can make cells, I mean, you don't even need genetic engineering, just cancer. Cancer cells, they go dividing and dividing and dividing forever. We understand how telomeres are lengthened. And uh, the important thing to think about is that if you look at my cells um, goes back in a continuous line back for four billion years. I mean, so, you know, it's um, the uh, organisms have figured out um, how to how to maintain continuity of life, even if the individual organism dies. And I think that I mean I think Hayflick is just you know he's a uh, of the generation prior to genetic engineering, and he didn't know the the, uh, the power that was actually possible with that. I tend to agree with that assessment. By the way, I think that's. Well, the second law of thermodynamics doesn't work because, I mean, there's a, there's a uh, energy input, right? I mean, a second law of thermodynamics, everything's going to degrade if there's no energy input. We've, for the next two billion years, there's plenty of energy input. And, and At least on this planet. Yeah. 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 Okay, so since there were a lot of questions about AI, so maybe I'll try to respond to some of them. So I remember, okay, the last one was about, you know, who is going to benefit for AI, you know, if the people in the street are going to benefit and so on. And I think that uh, actually, you know, the we can make, for example, healthcare is one obvious and current uh, uh, sector where AI is being used or trying to be used to, and to help doctors to uh, find better cures, diagnosis, therapies, and so on. And of course, this will uh, improve the quality of healthcare in our first world country, uh, world, but uh, you know, the main impact will be in developing countries where doctors do not see as many cases that do not have you know the same uh, education and kind of experience so that's really where the impact is being done actually and more generally from that, I mean, again, the multidisciplinarity is important because AI people and uh, people in that know the, the problems that our planet has, like, for example, the UN, are regularly getting together and studying how AI can help towards the 17 sustainable development goals. For each one of them, what are the issues, what are the problems, how they can be framed and solved by AI in part 
art or totally or whatever. So really, there is an emphasis on uh, um, uh, underrepresented communities, developing countries, you know, and what AI can do for that, and not just for our, you know, first world uh, world. world. Uh, the second one is about happiness and well-being. Again. I think that there are efforts in that direction, you know, to understand how to use AI not just to make us more efficient, uh, but also to improve our well-being. So one example is that uh, IEEE, which is the worldwide association for uh, engineers, has put together a very interesting document of more than 200 pages on, um, uh, it's called Ethically Aligned Design, which is about, you know, all the issues, uh, ethic issues that can come up in when you are developing and deploying AI into the real world, and for each one of them, possible uh, <coughs> solutions. And it, one chapter of this big uh, book is about well-being. Uh, so that is something to go. Uh, another thing is that I, for example, am discussing with people that know about well-being, and maybe they don't know about AI, to understand really what it means for, uh, for AI to help uh, improve our well-being, whether it's an individual or a collective well-being, and so on. So you, for example, there is a person um, uh, the venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi that I work with. He's at MIT. He's the director of the Ethics Institute at MIT, and he's an expert of well-being, empathy, and this um, topics, and is interested in really working to understand how technology and AI specifically can make us uh, uh, not less profitable, less efficient, uh, but more, you know, en en enhancing our well-being and empathy and these traits that are typical that mm -hmm. we may want to maintain and even enhance. So I see a lot of things going on, and but you have to understand that things are not, I mean, we are not at the point that, you know, everything is concluded and then you can judge AI right now. You know, things are evolving. People are understanding more and more. And uh, by talking to each other, especially in a place like this with people that have different point of view, different experience, you know. Um, and then this brings along, you know, better understanding of what to do. Smacked by how much things have changed in our lifetime. We yeah. should just be blown. I mean, we, we live day to day and we get used to this stuff very quickly, but these little devices here and the, the way we live today, that we're flying around the world, and, and we should, should all just sort of take a moment and take a deep breath and say, my, how things have changed in a very short period of time, and, and remember that they could, they could stop changing, or could plateau, or it could continue. And if it continues at the pace that, um, that it has been, then I think we'll be a much transformed species on a very transformed planet, for better and for ill. That's how I would frame it. So. I think we could stop yeah. on that, Douglas. Yeah, that sounds good. I would also say that little device in front of you, uh, at a certain point, 20 years ago, very few people had them. Right. Now everybody does. And so every technological development begins with a certain kind of, if you will, an imbalance or an injustice. And if we took that as our sole determinant, 
then we would have no technological development whatsoever. So, so I will try to have the, <laughs> the last word here by saying that as long as we keep the critical perspective on those developments and not take them as inevitable and as necessary and as determined, then, then we are in good shape. But if we buy into the transhumanist myth that it has to happen the way Kurzweil, let's say, tells us it's going to happen, then we have a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.